If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is The Art of Awesome, episode number 100. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to The Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. My goal is to share with you stories, knowledge, and inspiration as we continue on the journey together, searching for that secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to The Art of Awesome. I am your host, Nick Troutman, and today is a Monday... But not only is it Monday, today is our episode 100. Pretty cool to think that we've made it to 100 and definitely want to say thank you to all of you for listening, for staying tuned, for sending me messages and uh, letters of encouragement to keep going, as well as all your ratings and reviews. So thank you all you guys for participating, for taking part in helping grow this uh, sharing it out with friends, family, on social media, all that stuff. You guys have definitely been helping build this community and collective as a whole. So thank you all um, for doing your part. And also, I, I just want to say thank you to continue to do your part. So to continue to share and um, and you know give feedback, give um, ratings and reviews, anything that helps us grow this as a whole, as well as kind of build our collective. Um, being that my whole purpose of this is to just share information with you guys, and I'm not charging anything for it. So, uh, so the only thing I'm asking in return is for you guys to to kind of help out, help share this with maybe somebody that you think uh, might enjoy, might get value out of it, or just leaving us a rating and review if if you got value out of it. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you guys for all that you've done. Being that today is episode 100. I wanted to do something a little bit different today, and instead of doing a long format interview deep dive that I usually do on Mondays, today I was going to kind of just run through a couple different pieces of information that I found valuable from the hundred episodes that we've had and the many different conversations and interviews from our amazing guests. So here are a couple moments from the show that I really enjoyed and lessons um, that, that really helped me out and hopefully help you guys out as well. So, uh, hope you guys enjoy. First off is a piece from our interview with Jimmy Johnson and he really kind of talks about 
reinventing yourself uh, and how he is able with all of the success that he has had in life to continue to reinvent himself and uh, push beyond and chase his childhood dreams. So let's take a listen. My opportunities led me to NASCAR and I'm so thankful they did. I mean, clearly, um, you know, it was the right place for me to be with my skill set and in uh, my opportunities. But now, you know, I'm at a point where after 20 plus years of doing that, I'm ready for a new challenge and, and I'm not, I'm not done being competitive. I'm not done being uncomfortable. I'm not done learning. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going back to the thing that I wanted to do when I was eight or 10 years old now. And, you know, I'm in a position in life where I, I, I've, I can create those opportunities. And I think I would be mad at myself if I didn't see that through. And it, it's, uh, I've got a long road ahead of myself, you know, especially, to get to a point where I can be competitive for a win, but I'm having so much fun uh, starting over in a sense and going through this that um, I'm, I'm enjoying the ride. It's going to be a fun, uh, fun couple of years. Give us a try. That's super cool. And I, I'm the same way in, in a lot of ways. We're just like the, almost like addicted to learning, like just like trying new things for me is super fun. And you know, the, I think it's like that, that learning curve is where, where you get like a lot of this joy because you're able to learn, you know, at an exponential rate, like you and NASCAR, you're so far up at the top. You're, you might not be learning as quickly, right? Because you're kind of at the apex, whereas you can transition to something else, like a new form of racing, like India or something. And you get that, that learning curve where you're just maybe like learning new things every day. And it's, it's almost like, like an addiction a little bit. Do you find the same thing or? Totally do. Yeah. You're, you're spot on. Um, you know, and I also, I've just got to be real with myself that I'm only 45. Like I still want to work. I still need to do things. I, I probably don't have to work financially. I've been very fortunate there, but am I going to try to go be a businessman? No, that's, I'm, I'm going to lose all my money doing that. Like I, I don't have any experience really doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, I, I like to scare myself. I like my adrenaline flowing. I like to drive vehicles. So, you know, for me, um, I guess it is a bit surprising that I went from the top level of sedan racing with NASCAR now to the top level of formula racing in America with IndyCar. Uh, there, there's some other steps down below that make more sense. But again, you know, this, this childhood dream and, and an opportunity in front of me that I, I just I had to take. Up next, we've got a piece from Arjuna Ishaya, um, the kayaking monk. Again, another one of my favorite interviews. And he really talks all about consistency towards our goal. Um, we talk about trying to move forward and almost those baby steps towards the goals, but not just the baby steps and the continual movement. It's that consistency every day towards those goals that really achieve um that really bring the achievement and success in the long run. There's uh, there's another quote in, in your book that, that I really enjoy um, from Lao Tzu that says, a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. And then you go on to say, um, yes, but a journey of a thousand miles is completed with many steps in one direction, which I thought was really cool because I've, I've heard Lao Tzu's um, quote many times, but I've never really thought about the second version. And, and you kind of go on to talk about how um, that we need consistency in, in one direction, obviously, and, and kind of 
how, I, I mean, I struggle with this myself personally, where I get like a lot of ideas or I get, you know, really excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to run after this. Oh, I'm going to run after that. And, and I call it the like shiny object syndrome. But, but I think you're totally right where, where we need that consistency to, you know, fulfill that journey of a thousand miles or, or anything that you want to do, whether you're like trying to build the bridge to success or to, to relationships or whatever it is, like you need to continue on in that one direction. Do you have anything like that you want to add to like how we can, I don't know, stick with consistency a lot more being that we're in a world filled with distraction? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just so important to balance that the, the two things of having a goal and having ambitions and having responsibilities but knowing that you can only get there by the next step that's in front of you you know and and so often in the spiritual world it's like the moment this is the only thing there is and so people just wander aimlessly (laughs) barefoot around the world which is cool and i did for a while but there's something lacking right there's no there's the feeling like you're building something the feeling feeling like you're becoming something bigger is so satisfying and I think we need it. And so, but, but being totally lost on the top of the mountain means you'll be, I will be happy when I'll be happy when I get this project, when I win this, when I have this recognition, when I pull this off or or the world looks a certain way. And so our happiness always is in the future. It's always on this top of the mountain and we're at the bottom staring up going and, and, for many of us, you know, what is it, 98% of New Year's re- resolutions fail within the first 10 days. <laughs> that goal is so high and so impossible, but we don't actually break it down to, okay, what am I going to do today? What can I do? You know, so that balance, I, I, it's been an increasing realization that ambition is okay, but bring it right back to what you can do, what you want to do right here, right now to get there. Right. No, I... I... I also have found that in in my own personal life that um, I guess a lot of happiness and joy comes from the journey, which people say that all the time and it's kind of cliche, but but almost like I guess beyond just saying the journey, I would say it is the growth. It is the the continual learning and the growth where the, where the joy and the excitement comes, where I mean it could be anything that you're trying to do, whether you're kayaking and and whether, you know, you want to learn a new trick or you want to run a waterfall of a certain height or run a new river or whether you want to just like learn a new subject or whatever it is. It's it's kind of that, that growth that is again, for me really exhilarating and um, exciting. And it kind of just like, it brings this fulfillment, but at the same point, I mean, I've, I've totally done the like, oh, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy if, I'll be happy, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then you achieve that. And then it's like, it's so, I guess hollow is the way to do it where it's like, you're stoked. You're, you're just like, this was amazing. And I achieved the goal, but now what? And I actually, I, I talked with, um, with Jess Fox earlier in Olympian and, and she kind of, we talked about the same thing about how Olympians go through this all the time where post Olympics, there's like this depression because like their whole life has been leading up to this, you know, Olympic games. And then there's this like, well, now what? And I, and I think that we do this often, you know, on our own levels, but with, with goal setting where we, we have a goal and then that growth, the, the, like the journey, the road there is, 
is the exhilarating, uh, like fulfilling part because you're learning and you're continually growing. And then when you finally get there, you're kind of like, huh, okay, well, that wasn't all it was meant to be. Like, it really is that growth part of the journey that, um, that I would say almost like supersedes the goal in the end to begin with. Like where, and, and there's another quote where it kind of talks about like, you know, the, um, at, at the peak of every mountain, you see another mountain. Do you know what I mean? Like every time you climb one, there's, there's always another goal. You can always go bigger and, and, and keep growing. And, and I guess that is it is that every time you do achieve something, you set a goal for yourself, you go out and that growth is where the happiness is. Um, and then when you achieve it, you don't just sit on the top of the mountain and you don't come back down. You've got to find like another mountain to climb. And, um, I don't know, have you kind of found the same thing in, in your like search to happiness or, or fulfillment? Oh, absolutely. There's, yeah. I mean, obviously it takes, you know, my, my vows as a monk are meaning that my life is dedicated to, to fulfillment, to truth, to, to peace. And, and yet there, there can't be a top of the mountain because that limits the divine it limits the spiritual nature it puts a, a big fence around it says that's it <laughs> and so you get there and it, it, it truly on a spiritual religious anything on any kind of path you have to be innocent and curious and like what what's next <laughs> what's if i go beyond this barrier what's here and, and I think that's what's so exciting about growth is it because it can only happen when you are curious, when you are just going, I'm scared right now. What's, what, but what's beyond this fear? Is, is it, what happens if I step beyond it? Ah, oh. you know, and you, and you learn that curiosity, openness, innocence is, is the greatest tool for, well, it's exploration itself, isn't it? It's an adventure. Can I do this? What's here? What's around the next corner? What happens if I turn left instead of right? But especially on a spiritual path, it's, it's so easy to think, you know, we think I'll be happy when I get to this top of the mountain. There's that idea of the guru sitting on the top of the mountain. <laughs> I've achieved it. Yeah. And, and, and all that brings in is comparison and evaluation. And I'm good today, but I was terrible yesterday. And we completely lose life, the fullness of life, which is right here, right now. Up next, we've got a piece from our interview with Eddie Stone, the founder of Touchstone Essentials, on finding your why. Eddie kind of really talks about um, knowing where you want to go, why you want to go there, and really just how committed you are. Let's take a listen. What do you want to do this for? Because if we can really lock in on that, it will give you the courage and the stamina and the willpower to sort of fight through what you must because we're all going to have these disruptive elements. It could be that you've got a group of friends that are kind of like you and all of a sudden you're changing in a way that they're like, they'd like to be there, but they don't have the same determination. And they're like, well, you know, they, they become unhappy and they sabotage There's all these kind of dynamics. And so I tell people identify, you know, what it is you're doing this for, where you want to go, and then consider, and I do this with a lot of things, on a scale of one to 10, how committed are you to that? And I can tell you from the research that's out there and people can go online and do their own research. If on a scale of one to 10, there's something you want and you don't say I'm committed at least eight, nine or 10, it won't happen. Life is too disruptive and chaotic if you're seven or less. And so 
once a person knows where they want to go, has this idea of their level of commitment, then it's easy to think about, okay, what are we doing that throws us so far off track? You know, do you have any movement in your life? Maybe the first thing we need to do is say, we got five or 10 minutes of walking twice a day, every day. Is that it? Is it that your diet's just egregious? So that all the calories you're eating are coming from ultra processed foods, which are high in fat, sodium, empty calories, right? So they probably cause you to crave and eat too much, too much sugar. But I do think it's, at least for me, as I talk to people, and this comes up a lot, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? How committed are we to that end? And then let's think about the steps to take. I think when people buy the diet book before they know what they want to do, then it, they just don't follow through because life is so challenging. And I, I, I just want to be honest about that challenge and say it's not easy to change, not easy to change habits. We can do it, but man, we need to be really solid in, in knowing where we want to go and how committed we are. Up next, we've got a piece from our interview with Dr. Kate Hickson, the NASA scientist, as she really breaks down how to build a team as she was working towards team building for the long duration space missions, aka the Mars missions. Super interesting interview and really love this feat and really love this and really love her tips on team building. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from our uh, conversations offline before, you were telling me how you were working with some of the team building for the, what did you call it, like deep space or, or long trip missions or something like that, essentially the team building for the Mars yeah. missions. Correct. Yeah, you got it. So I focused on astronaut teamwork training for long duration space missions, AKA Mars. <laughs> so the theory behind that is that whoever ends up going to Mars and they're already selecting some teams for it, but it's likely going to be comprised of international crews, right? Like there will be someone from Russia, likely folks from the United States, probably Japan, somewhere in the UK, Europe. I mean, it's going to be a really diverse team. It'll definitely be men and women. And so how do you get these people who are already remarkably high performers, right? To go through the astronaut training program, you have to be just a baller <laughs> in so many ways. Like mentally, you have to have all the skills, all the knowledge, the expertise. Physically, you have to be a really, really fit, top performing person in athletics. There's all this criteria, but still that doesn't guarantee teamwork. So you take a crew of, let's just say six, I mean, it could be as many as 10, they're still working out the models. But if you take six people, you put them in something like the size of a minivan and say, okay, adios, good luck. <laughs> you know, we'll see you in a year or two years, you know, depending on which model, there's, there's varying degrees of how long the trip's gonna take. But that's pretty intense. Like that takes a lot of psychological development to be able to perform in that situation on top of to perform as a team. And so much of what astronauts do, it is team-based, right? Like aside from flying the machine, which in and of itself is just incredible, but they're also performing so many experiments when they're up there. They're doing so much research, gathering data. They have chores, they have tasks. And again, they're in a small space. 
it is just a remarkably high stakes environment. So for me, I really honed in on how do you create a high performing team? What does that look like? What does it mean to be high performing? And then how do you get there? And then on top of that, a very specific question that I addressed was, how do you do that remotely? Because I remember, for example, I was in the chief engineer's office. So the chief engineer of the International Space Station, (laughs) pretty important person, right? And I was looking at an entire wall where it had essentially like a spreadsheet, if you will, but it was, you know, six feet by six feet. And it had all the United States astronauts listed and where they would be each day for like the next nine months. Like that's how planned their lives are. (laughs) And to see where they overlapped, it was very little. Like they were never in the same room or the same place at the same time. So there again, how do you get a high performing team from a distance? Like what what technology tools are out there? There's plenty, right? (laughs) There's so many ways to communicate, collaborate, build a team, but which ones are the most effective? But even at that, like what, what does the training program look like? So that's what I developed with my dissertation is identifying those knowledge, skills, and abilities for a high-performing team and then figuring out how do you teach that? How do you train that? How do you really internalize that? So that model that I created, I'm really proud of, of course, I'm really proud of it. But what's been really cool too is to, aside from using it within NASA, using it within the astronaut training corps, like that's astounding. But the applications since then, you know, you look at high performing teams all around the world, whether it's, you know, emergency room doctors or emergency room nurses, surgeons, firefighters, folks in the military, um, high profile businesses, you know, corporations where they have this entire C-suite that's responsible for 50,000 employees. You know, these this model, these applications of teamwork training can apply to anything. And then you think about like you, Nick, you know, you're a professional kayaker, you're in competitions, you're doing the freestyle, like surely you have a team surrounding you as well, right? And so how do you guarantee that you're all performing very well together? Like that's the big question. And a lot of people get team building confused with teamwork training. So team building, if you think about it, it's like, okay, we're going to do a ropes course together or we're going to do a cooking class or go bowling or you know whatever it might be, right? Like it's building the relationship. It's building the intimacy. It's getting to know the people on your team. And that's crucial. That is absolutely crucial. But that does not then guarantee the ability to work together as a team, right? So it's a whole different concept. Teamwork training is very deliberate practice and training in teamwork itself (laughs) so it's a big distinction yeah what were some of those um applications that you really took out and you know used for your dissertation but like essentially what were the key fundamentals that you found for this teamwork training whether it's you know for a mars mission or whether it's something for a business Mm -hmm. or a pro athlete team or anything like that yeah so you have to really hone in on again like what makes a team what are the basic competencies of a high-performing team. So it's things, for example, like um, conflict management, conflict resolution, 
it's an entire suite of interpersonal skills, you know, communication, um, tempering emotions, remaining level-headed, listening. <laughs> I mean, it sounds simple, right? Like listening. We, we can all listen, right? Well, no, we actually can't. Like a lot of us are really good at talking or we're really good at hearing people, but listening is a much deeper connection, truly understanding what someone is saying. You know, then there's things like empathy, leadership, but also task delegation. You know, if you look again at a high performing team, there's rarely just one specific leader. Instead, people rise to leadership at different points throughout whatever that team is accomplishing. So it could be that, you know, maybe Nick is the leader during this phase of a mission or this part of a sport or a competition or a performance. But then at other times, you know, someone from your crew is rising up and they're really taking control. Like they're being the leader for, you know, the post-production of a, of a performance or, you know, whatever it might be, right? So it's, it's situational leadership. It's knowing when to take the reins and use your strengths, but then knowing when to take a step back, draw upon other people's strengths, letting them really shine, letting them take control. So again, like there's this entire suite of skills that are important for that high performing team. But I go back to how do you learn that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's one thing for me to rattle all this off. Okay, cool. I know that I need to, you know, check, 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 check. Within my team, we need to do this, this, this. Great, got it. <laughs> but then how do you do it? You know, how do you learn it? So for example, one thing that I found through my own research, as well as drawing upon research of a lot of other folks is the idea of, uh, it's called behavior modeling or behavior modeling theory. So it's a specific instructional or training strategy where it's quite simple, really, where you witness and observe, pay attention to examples that are positive of a behavior, as well as poor examples of that behavior. And you really need that dichotomy. So that can be via like a video or a case study or, um, you know, watching a reel of a football game right? You know, like so many athletes will watch that video after they performed. So really understanding, okay, we did really great in that moment. Look, look how we came together as a team. Look how the entire defensive line, we're working together, we're, you know, and this person's leading and they're listening, you know, so you identify like those specific skills, the instances where it went well, and then you debrief on that. You talk about it. <laughs> and then on the flip side, you view a really terrible example <laughs> where everything, you know, went to went to hell. <laughs> so what did that look like? Like what what specifically did we do incorrectly in that moment? And it's that deeper application that allows you to start to really understand what it looks like. And then of course it's practicing it. It's just practice. <laughs> like so many athletes, high performers, like we know the value of practice, but to do so in a really deliberate way. So Maybe you've heard uh, the idea of the 10,000 hours. You know, that yep. became a huge kind of headline. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell, one of his books. And it just, you know, grabbed everyone's attention. Oh, cool. I only need 10,000, only. <laughs> but I need 10,000 hours to really excel at something. Great. I can become a great piano player or a kayaker or a salesman. I just need the 10,000 hours. Well, that's actually not entirely true. <laughs> so... I've really studied quite closely the original uh, researcher behind all that. It's a gentleman by the name, he's passed away, unfortunately, but Anders Ericsson. So his, that's who Malcolm Gladwell based his entire book on, was Anders' work. 
Anders, yes, in a way, it's 10,000 hours, but it's actually more about what he calls deliberate practice. So what is deliberate practice? Deliberate practice is where you're practicing not just to practice, you're practicing specifically to increase your performance. Up next, we've got something from Hela Sadib, uh, a great friend of mine and phenomenal runner. And he really talks about how to deal with doing the work on the days that you don't want to do it. We've all had those days where we're committed to something and you really just don't feel that way. And he kind of breaks down how he deals with those days. This was a great lesson for me and hopefully you guys get something out of this. What do you do when you have like the hard days and you, you talk about like having something that you want to stick to and, and just yeah. kind of, you know, do every day, but you've got to have days that you wake up and you don't want to go for a run or something, don't you? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And your the surprise answer is going to be like, whoa, I've never woken up and then say, I do not want to go run. I get up. I'm a brat. Sometimes I said, I'm like, I don't want to run. And my girl, my girl would be like, be quiet. You know, you're going to run. And I said, yeah, I do. I just like to be a brat about it. But it never got to a degree where I'm just like, I really don't want to go. And I always say, when I feel that that day, I'm going to make a YouTube video, I quit running. I will because I don't want to do it. And I never got to that point. I've been to a point where like you're lazy, you know, the typical human being lazy, you just don't want to get up at that moment. But you know, eventually you're going to figure out a way to get the work. And I always say that it doesn't matter how long it takes you, as long as you figure it out. So I've had lazy days, but it never got to a point where I'm like, I don't want to go running. And, and the beautiful part about that is because I'm running pressure free. My goal was to run. I didn't care how fast I was going. I didn't care how long I was going. It had to be just 10 minutes was just a, a time standard, but I, I didn't care how slow or fast or whatever. It, none of that matters to me. The point was just to run. So without that pressure, it made it easy for me to get up every day. And I don't feel like I have to cover a certain amount of miles. And even though I have a minimum requirement at some point that built it up to seven miles a day. But before that, it was just run pressure free. So even when I go to the daily minimum, I'm just going with a mentality go give whatever your best is right now. If I don't get to that seven, I'm not going to be myself down on it. Because of that, there's no fear to letting myself down. I've never felt that I don't want to go today. So I think that helps a lot. No, that, that is incredible for sure. I never, never really thought about it, but just by making your goal so small and so achievable, then yes. you never, there's no reason not to do it. Yeah. I said, if it comes down to it, the initial 10 minutes that I started with, I'll go back down to that and to that 10 minutes right now will be nothing compared to when I'm going for an hour at a time. That's just a small amount of time. And I tell people, even if it comes down for me to crawl, if I have to walk, jog, walk, jog, I'll do it. Um, it's not running straight for a long time, but I'm still doing running, even if it's a certain amount of time. So I think volume and, and not putting too much pressure on yourself is very important. Anything you do in life, um, if there's no pressure, it's going to be that much easier to tackle. That's amazing. Do you, do you do that with other things in your life than running? Do you like, you know, set goals for yourself that you kind of, you know, bring down a little bit so that they're a little bit more achievable or? Yeah, yes, yes. Because um, what running did to me was the consistency of running translated completely to different areas of my life. I'm consistent with other things. Like I, I've, I've told you that I've done, I do personal training. I do virtual now with COVID. I do speed and agility quickness training with um, my clients. And uh, we do some soccer technicality because that's the game that I grew up playing. Um, so I'm consistent of keeping, making sure that they're getting the proper training that they're doing. I'm consistent with setting up my schedule before I would just go and go and do the training without planning it. And I didn't need to plan it. So just planning it makes it better because you feel like you're being a little more productive about it. You're putting more energy to it. 
instead of showing up to do something that day. Um, so all of that has changed. Um, relationship has changed, like literally personal relationship, one-on-one relationship. I've been consistent communicating with people. Um, I've been consistent of just being vulnerable, you know, letting my, just showing everything about my life to people. So it all began because of the consistency of running. It's crazy. It's like a, a circle of life for me, how everything started just molding together. That's amazing. I, I probably need a little bit more consistency in my life. And, uh, sometimes I, I don't know, I'm a big like dreamer and I, I set these goals for myself and usually I set them like really big. And Uh I think that can be almost to a fault at times where sometimes, you know, I might even rarely do I like give up completely, but I'll push it off. I'll be like, Oh, you know, this goal is too big or whatever. You know, I'll get it done, you know, next week or next month or whatever. But I think it's way better to shrink it down to something, you know, achievable. Exactly. And then even if it's spending five minutes on it, because a little bit of that five minutes every day ends up being a lot of minutes versus skipping a few days and then pick another day. So it's just just volume and then one step at a time. That's always the mentality. One step at a time, one run at a time. So anything I do, that's what I, I was focused on. Yeah, I yeah. think I think you've kind of almost come with like a a success hack right there where it's like whatever your goal is, just focus a minimum of ten minutes every day on whatever it is. Whatever yeah. that is. And I always tell people you can find ten minutes in your day. You always can because we have so many downtime than we think we do. We don't. Um, we, we find our time to watch our favorite TV shows. Um, we find time to go to, when we can go to the movie theater, to the bars. But when it comes to something that we really want to do, we're like, I don't think I have time. And even I'm a huge junkie, like watching TV shows and things like that. I'm like, I got to get a workout in. My girl will be sitting right there. Play the show. I do my workout right next to the TV. Like my like house workout, because I try to work on my body, body weight. And I have my resistance band and I start my my running app and I mean my workout app and I'm just doing that workout. So I'm like within 15 to 20 minutes of the show, I'm already halfway through my workout. By the time the hour mark comes, I'm done with my workout. I got my work in while I'm enjoying my show and I sit down and enjoy the rest of the show. So you could always find time. If it's that important enough to you, I feel like you might as well spend time on it because you're always thinking about it. That means that that's something you want to do. Up next, we've got a little controversy with Rafa Ortiz as we kind of have this back and forth conversation about advice for young athletes and whether or not they should pursue a dream to become a pro athlete. And essentially, you better not unless you're ready to go all in. Let's take a listen. Raf, if, you know, some young kid were to come up to you or anybody, it doesn't matter if it's a young kid or not, what advice would you give for someone that wants to pursue a career like yours, being that you've had great success so far? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of funny, but like I I have chatted with a bunch of, you know, a bunch of different kids that are like that look up to me and, and reach out to me like, yo, you want I want to do what you did. And the reality is that I I consider myself very lucky. Like I looking back at my professional career, there's so many points that are, you know, legit I was legitimately I was like we were lucky to meet Ben Stooksbury that day on the golly. I would not be here where I am right now if it wasn't for that chance to meet that guy and have that conversation at that time in life. I just I just think that, you know, being a professional athlete, in in order to be successful, you have to be part of the one percent. And if you look at the numbers, 
how likely is, is it that you are that 1%? I, I heard about it in a podcast recently of this, like this, it's a very dangerous syndrome when you think that you're better than the rest, you know, it's dangerous to look at something and be like, Oh, everybody has failed, but I'm going to succeed. You know, like I, as I've grown older, I've also learned to kind of break with that optimism that I, you know, innately have in my nature and just kind of be more realistic about things, you know, and realistically, like by the numbers, you're not going to succeed at being a professional kayaker. Maybe, maybe you do have those very lucky moments and, and you are. And I mean, I don't want to discourage anyone because I mean, someone is going to end up in that 1%, you know, and someone is going to end up being able to live out of, you know, a sport and, you know, have an awesome kayaking career and actually make a living out of one of the most fun things you could ever do. But, you know, if you look at the numbers, I would say, you know, if you're 17, 18 and try to, create a professional kayaking career, I would say if you're going to do it, you have to understand that it's not likely and it's going to be freaking hard. And I mean, I also truly believe that there's, you know, no such thing. I, I just mentioned like lucky moments, but there's also no such thing as luck. Like you, luck is the combination between, I forget that. Preparation <laughs> meets opportunity. There we go. Okay. But you know, and, 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 and if you, and if you work really hard and pre to the preparation, eventually opportunity is naturally going to come, even if you have a huge cloud over your head your whole life. Um, it's inevitable, but do understand that it's hard and it's unlikely as a young kid, you don't believe in the numbers. You don't believe that something unlikely is that's going to be your case. If, if you know, if, if you're, if you're not 200% sure that that's what you want, I would say, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't find something that every, like every human being has done and has created a successful path with. And then kayaking, the thing is like being a professional kayaker is it also has, it's a double-edged sword. It, it also has kind of a negative side to it. You know, it's super fun for sure. And it's really, it's, it's a cool freedom path, but it also comes with great responsibility, you know, and it's also, there is something to be said about turning your passion into your job. Don't take me wrong. I still love going to the river every day and spending time in my kayak, but there's something that changes the taste of my passion when, you know, I'm filming a commercial and I kind of have to run that waterfall. I still love challenging myself, but there's something that changes that it's, it's tricky and it's tricky to learn how to, go through it, you know, and, and learn to adapt to it, you know, because I mean, I still love running a waterfall, even if it's for a commercial and I kind of have to do it, but, but it does kind of, it does change something about it. Yeah. It's funny as you were saying, like, don't do it. Cause just knowing myself, if my like 16, 17 year old version heard you say that, I would have been like, oh dude, I'm so doing it. Like to spite you, <laughs> like, like I'm going to show you, prove you wrong. I'm going to show you for sure. But you're, you're definitely right with the, with the whole passion thing where I remember when I was really young, like, so I got into kayaking when I think I was like 13 and within 15 minutes, I totally was in love with the sport. Like this was 100% my calling. And I remember talking to our instructor at the time, James Roddick, and I remember thinking, oh, I love kayaking so much. I would never want to do kayaking as a job because I wouldn't want to have the job take away from my 
passion yeah. in the sense that like, I want to go to work and if I have a bad day, I could always go back to kayaking where if kayaking was my job and I had a bad day, then what do you go back to? Now, that was my mentality when I was 13. You know, as life has gone on, I totally, you know, did that. I turned my passion into my career and, and into a job. Um, and I never really considered it a job. And maybe that's the difference is that yeah. is I was always able to keep the passion there and still able to keep the passion there because I don't really think of it that much of as, as a job or on the flip side, if there was a day, you know, that's harder that I do think like, oh, this is more of a job. I try to always remind myself, this is the coolest job. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't totally, know. Totally. But, but there is, there is something for sure where once it becomes like, if you ever consider it a job there, there's at least a piece of that passion that, that starts to, I don't know, crumble a little bit. I think, I think for anybody that wants to keep that passion alive, I guess, is if you want to pursue being a professional in, in, you know, kayaking or do whatever, or follow your dreams. Cause everybody says like, you know, make your passion into your career, which I still 100% believe but at the same point, don't make it into a job, make it into a career. Maybe yeah. that's just the difference totally. there. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Uh, and I would actually kind of like to go back to, cause it's kind of interesting. Cause it kind of comes back to our first, the first thing we were talking about in this podcast, going back to like that boldness that you have when you're 18. And it kind of comes down to that point, right? That like syndrome of like, everybody's failed, but I'm going to do it. You know, in the end, it's like, like I'm hearing myself and that's 33 year old daddy rafa that's like like i've learned to like you know look at the numbers and like make smarter decisions but in the end like you know who's going to be the next professional kayaker that gets to live an incredible life well that one that pushes through the doubt that one that pushes through that belief of 99 have failed i'm not going to do it you know so you know i don't know i'm i i do know that i just dis discouraged kids to try following that this path but in the end if you don't try you don't succeed so you know and i i don't know i think it's you know either it's also taught me like you know like it's a formula you know that like we were saying earlier it's like <clears throat> not just the way that we were able to become professional kayakers but it's also like same formula that will make you successful in life yeah i ironically i wouldn't even think that you know, at first when you were saying like, don't do it, I was like, what? That's the worst <laughs> advice ever. But ironically, like after just like listening to you, I do agree because just again, reflecting on what I was thinking, if I was that kid listening, if you're, if, if that doubt is there and you're like, oh man, it's not easy. Oh man, it's not glamorous. Oh man, there isn't a ton of money in it. Maybe I shouldn't do it. You're right. You shouldn't. But if you're that kid that's listening and someone says, oh, don't do it. You can't make it. It's not worth it. And you still feel like, oh, I'm going to show you. Then go for totally. it 100%. Totally. But, but, but no, but don't go for it 100%. Go for it 200% because you have to beat all the other 99% that are going 100%. Like, and I think that's kind of, that's the lesson, you know? Yeah. Like no. I, I learned, I've learned that like in order to be successful in life, you have to learn to give more than 100%. Yeah. No, that's great advice for sure. Here we talk with Dane Jackson all about the future of whitewater kayaking and as one of the best in the sport, where he sees the future going and what's in store for us.
you're just as in tune with the sport as anybody. Where do you see the sport kind of evolving to? Do you think there's going to be like higher and higher waterfalls that are continued to push? Do you think we're going to get, you know, start pushing bigger and bigger volume rapids? Or do you see the freestyle like you guys, like you and Annie Ole doing the Cobra flips and, and Tennessee Tomahawks and all this stuff, like, or maybe even Creek racing freestyle. Like where do you see the most room for growth within whitewater kayaking as a, as a whole? I think everything, every, everywhere has its lane and things that can be done. I think the, everything is progressing each part of the sport is progressing in its own way and i think gets stepped stepped up whether it's running bigger water bigger waterfall like obviously people are gonna like there's gonna be an attempt sometime soon i'm sure for a, a breakable uh, waterfall record um people are starting to learn how to do a lot more controlled stuff off of waterfalls which i think one it's exciting because we're definitely it's starting to make us realize that there is a, actually a little bit of as long as you can figure out the technique there is a little more control than we thought so flipped off of waterfalls, which might open up doors to get a little more crazy off of drops we've been doing a long time, as well as um, really start bringing competitions in on that aspect. Um, when it comes to racing, all of that, I think in the end, everything is getting stepped up in its own way. Um, but I think what's really going to, I think the next step is just really we need to start having more events, more crossover events, more events, just pushing the sport, getting it to bigger audiences. Um, and put, that would also allow the room for people to improve. Kind of like how like X Games, now I could be wrong, but it seems to me like, like I know to watch the X Games, like for snowboarding or uh, dirt biking, whatever it is. Because I know that a lot of times people like practice into the airbag all the time. That's where they're trying to bust out something new or Rebel Rampage or something like that. I think while we're progressing and it's been really good on our own, I think it'd be really cool to have competitions that would encourage people to try to step it up, do something new, whether it's a double Cobra flip or it's a double free wheel and control or whatever it is. So I think, um, uh, I think as things progress, hopefully we'll have competition that will come in line with that to encourage people to start learning new techniques and things like that. Up next, we've got Ryan McFarlane, the founder of Strider Bikes, and he explains how to figure out what you're at the best at and how to stay focused on that. Regularly in life, um, myself very much included, I get distracted easily um, on all sorts of things. But I think all of us get distracted on wanting to do a little bit of everything. And he gives some great insight on staying focused with what you're the best at. What was your biggest, uh, I don't know, hurdle or maybe struggle along the way with starting the company? Um. You know, I think uh, um, you definitely got to try and find focus. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I was very tempted always because as my boys grew and uh, there's always that temptation to keep um, building new product that fits them, you know, yeah. and at that age, kids grow so fast. I mean, uh, that was maybe a hard temptation for me. Um, to resist trying to continue developing more things, um, especially to follow my son's progression. And what I really looked at, though, is in the bike industry, the, the piece that was missing was that Strider, that entry level, started a year and a half, focus on balance first. And, um, 
And to really just stay focused on that, there was a lot of temptation to try and do a lot of other things, you know, next products, this and that. And I just kept really realizing, look, and telling myself, there's 4 million kids born every year in the United States. I don't need to work on anything else except this, you know, this is that one thing, that laser focus that I need to stay dedicated to. And um, I think that's made uh, really all the difference. And, you know, that kind of fits with the branding as well as it's like pick something and commit to it 100%, give it everything you've got. And, uh, and, you know, the rest will fall into place. I think um, the, the temptation to do too many things is probably what sinks a, a lot of businesses. Next, we got a buddy of mine, AJ Osborne, as he shares some tips for young adults, really all, pretty much everybody, about how to achieve financial freedom and really understanding financial literacy as a whole. I think this is something that uh, should be taught more within our school systems and just great advice that is super um, informative for myself and something that I wish I knew at a younger age and just information that I, I want to share with more people as I think financial literacy is an important topic that really everybody should learn. What would maybe be like some advice or one piece of advice that you would give to I would say almost anyone, but, but especially young adults out there, whether they're, you know, teenagers or, or kind of in their twenties or early thirties or whatever. I mean, however you want to kind of categorize young adults and, and I wouldn't, I mean, we can give the same advice to, to older yeah. adults too, but what, what do you think would be some of the best advice that you would give someone, um, as we're kind of moving into this possible new economic situation, but also that just wants that financial freedom that didn't learn financial literacy through the, the normal education system or anything like that. Yeah. And this is, you know, you've hit the perfect question and I, I don't want, you know, for your listeners, first of all, to feel overwhelmed. That is first of all, the care. Like when you think of economics and business, people are actually really simple. And you need to boil it down to the basics. In fact, the more complicated you make it, the more odds that you're wrong. And I use that a lot. I am, a, you know, school was never my thing. I was the kid that skipped every day to go skiing, right? I wanted to be out backcountry skiing with my buddies, just got back out of the backcountry, right? I did not understand school. I was failing in school. I'm dyslexic. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't fit into the model. You know, I was in the class with the kids that were um, failing and also mentally handicapped. Um, that's where they put me. So there was no way, there was nothing in my life that would ever say that I was going to be, you know, an intelligent person or anything else like that. And so I, my, my idea of life was I was literally going to be a ski bum, which I was very happy with at the time. Um, and what I think about economically that causes problems is people make it too complicated. When I got started in real estate, all I cared about was one thing only, cash flow. Did it make money, right? Like people get off and they talk, start talking about crazy things. Like you talk about like Bitcoin and GameStop and these are all the headlines and everything like that. I'm like, forget all that. Stop, 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 stop. Go to the basics, the basics. Get financial literacy on what is debt, what is income, what are expenses. If you have a job, how does your business make money? What are you doing every single day 
And how is that translating into the company you're working for? Just learn about literally where your paycheck comes from. How? How come you got a paycheck today, right? And how come you're going to get it in two years? Like this stuff may sound like, I don't want it to be like, well, this is a no brainer, but it, it really, if you can get the basics done really, really well, you'll always be successful. When we got started in self-storage, nobody invested in self-storage, like nobody. We didn't even tell people we invest in self-storage because it was this weird asset class that everybody was making money on stocks and houses when we were investing. Everybody, this is in the early 2000s, right? All my friends were millionaires and well, not all, but they were all get, make, becoming millionaires off the houses they were buying, right? And I couldn't get this to work. All my friends were telling me about how they're becoming millionaires because they're investing in these houses, everything. And I just assumed, okay, I'm not smart enough to do this because I don't understand. I'm looking at buying this house. It doesn't make money. So why can't I make this work? And once again, it was just like, I'm just not smart enough. So we're going to buy this little teeny storage facility and we're just going to have sell out a bunch of these doors that are on cement floors because people want to put it, but I'll buy it for $300,000 and it will make me a 10% return off my $100,000, which means it would make me, you know, over $10,000 a year. Well, that makes me money. I understand that. So we just bought storage facilities. And then obviously um, the bubbles burst. You had the dot-com bubble, then you had the housing bubble, um, and we weren't affected by that bubble because we had cash flowing assets. And this thing on equity and trading debt, I didn't understand any of that. I didn't need to, right? And it was the basic things that saved me, my family, it allowed me to scale. Um, I, I, I'm just not, if I have to be super intelligent to do it, I probably shouldn't be doing this. You know, I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not, you know, nobody, it's just, I don't understand those things. And two, the more complicated it is, the more luck is driven. And you don't need to be like that. You don't need to think you understand Bitcoin or something like that. None of that is necessary to become financially free. That's the first thing you have to understand. Financial freedom and financial literacy is actually very simple. And the fact that we weren't taught it in grade school, right? Doesn't mean that you can't learn it today. You should literally start picking up books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, just basic books to understand the economy. Like you should understand basic principles, inflation, deflation, what debt is good? What is it bad? Why does it make it good? Why does it make it bad? What is supply and demand? These really, really basic things that too, you also need to understand economics should be very intuitive, right? It should be very simple in understanding. And if it's not, just don't do it. Because I understand I have a product, somebody needs it. It costs me $10 to make, right? Somebody will buy it for $20. Okay. Can I build a business out of this? What all has to go into it? Are there actual people that buy it, right? You need to keep those things super, super simple and you don't need to do anything new. I don't do, I, I mean, I sell insurance. Literally I'm selling insurance policies. I was going, you know, door to door and investing in cement floors that people would put their stuff in. Um, I, you know, I've got another company that sells cups online that, you know, bought it for 200,000. It's now worth, you know, a year later, a few million dollars. And we really didn't even change anything. It was just the person that had it wasn't running ads and they didn't do a very good job listing it on Amazon. That's all we did. And so if you 
find things that exist with the basics, you can become an entrepreneur or you can become an investor. Or if you just understand investing and understand some principles, invest with other people to become financially free, right? So really that's my advice. First of all, don't let it scare you because it's not scary. It's crazy what I see like doctors or like scientists or like really smart people being like, oh, this is too complicated. I'm like, what? You know, and it, it, people, we have these, and I think the reason is, is like insurance, you know, we use like different lingo, right? Talk about deductibles and coinsurance. And it's like, we have to make up words, right? Where if you just boil it down to the really simplest part and don't use that lingo, finance is the same way. Just don't let the lingo scare you. Boil it down to the basics and start under understanding about your money, saving, why you're saving. You should save to invest, nothing else, because inflation erodes away your money. And if you're investing, what are you investing in and why? And what are your expectations? Do you want to become financially free? What's your freedom number, right? Do you need 4,000 a month to live on or do you need 10,000 a month? And if you invested in a certain way, how much money would you need to invest? How long would it take? If you want to become an entrepreneur, learn the basics of that and learn how you can get successful, right? Um, and I think if, as long as you keep it basic and just make a simple formula and just keep learning education all the time, read books, listen to podcasts, like, you know, any podcast, this podcast, other podcasts that can help you out. Um, I listen to books and podcasts daily, every day still. Um, cause it's unlimited the, the opportunity that's out there. And that's what you really need to understand. I mean, it's amazing how many people have either investments or businesses that they're getting the simple things wrong and it's tanking their businesses. And it's like, you know, I literally ask them, I'm like, well, did you pay your employees? Do your customers pay you? And the answer is no. And you're going, well, if your customers don't pay you, you can't make money. And so we would buy it and we would just make sure the customers would pay us. And all of a sudden it was a profitable business. Um, I keep it simple. I really think that's the best advice. As we discuss financial literacy with AJ Osborne, I wanted to move on to our interview with Mikey Taylor as he kind of brings it back around and talks about how being an athlete is also being an entrepreneur and how we can use those entrepreneurial skills, both in athletics, business, and everyday life. Truthfully, I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was until after I had started my first company. And basically, like, you know, going back to the beginning when I got sponsored as a pro skateboarder, uh, I think there were a lot of signs that, like, I was drawn toward, towards entrepreneurship. I just didn't see it. And this would be the example I'd give. Uh, when I was 16, my parents pushed me to get a job. It was like, hey, you're old enough now. You need to go to work. And I didn't want to work yet, right? So my way to not work was to try to basically convince companies to give me free product. And then with that free product, I would have everything I would need to use. And then the money that I needed to survive, I would sell product to, you know, kids who needed, you know, skate stuff at discount. And so that was like my first like, okay, this is what I need. How do I figure it out? I'll go do it. And I think that was like an early sign. And then as I kind of moved into the uh, skateboard industry, I was always really fascinated with how the business side of it worked. Like I loved, you know, and I experienced it when I got my first shoe. I loved how like you had to figure out an idea of what you wanted your shoe to be designed like. You had to go through the whole process of creating the shoe. Then you had to figure out how to sell that shoe and make this shoe different than that shoe. I loved that whole cycle. So uh, that's when I kind of realized that I think I was built to be an entrepreneur. 
Um, but yeah, I saw early signs of it when I was young. That's awesome. Do, do you think that, you know, cause I've got a, a similar kind of concept and, and idea behind it as well as like being an athlete myself. And I see this with other athletes where, you know, it's almost that drive to avoid the nine to five where you're like, I'm going to figure out a way to get paid to do what I love to do. Do you think that entrepreneurial or entrepreneurialism or however you want to say that is, you know, something that more professional athletes have, or is that just, you know, there's just a few of us kind of mixed in there that are more interested in like figuring out how to make it work financially? That's such a good question. Um, I actually think most people are built to be entrepreneurs, whether they realize it or not, or whether they become one. I think most of us have, you know, the traits inside of us of trying to solve problems, trying to, you know, highlight certain things that make it better than others. I I think there's a component of that, but with athletes specifically, um, I think everything it takes to become a professional athlete, all those same rules apply to creating a business. And so I'm a big believer in, yes, (laughs) if you put in the work and learn the resilience and discipline and really the obsession factor of mastering something, if you can apply all of those into creating a company, you're going to succeed at it. Um, So I I think, yes, but now the, the challenge becomes there's, it all comes down to our wants, right? What do we want? Like you just kind of touched on something like, how do we make our passion a career? How do you avoid the nine to five? Well, for a lot of people, their want is security. They don't want to worry about having to create a business to make money. They don't want all the pressure of managing people. They just want to go to work, get their paycheck and not, not worry about that. So I think it really comes down to uh, what you're trying to achieve at the end of the day. Right. But for an athlete who wants to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think you have a, a leg up on some people only because you've already gone through a lot of the, you know, challenges that it takes to become a professional uh, that other people have to find that type of struggle once they create their first business. And we're going to wrap up this episode 100 with another great interview and friend of mine, Will Gad, as he really breaks down understanding risk and even really informs me because I had previously talked about how to mitigate risk. Um, and he says it's it's not necessarily mitigating or managing risk, but yet it's just understanding risk. So really cool um, risk analysis that's broken down by a phenomenal athlete, by a phenomenal multi-sport athlete and world champion ice climber, Will Gad. Figuring out that whole risk management and assessing situations and different outcomes and like, you know, um, just playing through the different outcomes in your mind as well. And then, and then, I don't know, there's, yeah, I could go on and on. I, I find it pretty interesting, but. Yeah, I think we're chewing on the same things. One tool I check at you, maybe thinking about instead of risk management, one, one tool or one way that conceptually helps me ponder that is my risk understanding. I like that. Cause I'm not, we don't really manage risk. We, we can assign it to different categories. We can put it in different consequences, but especially in our world, which is like the outdoor um, sports world, 
what, what really matters is our understanding and whether we got it right or not that day or that hour or that minute or, or whatever. And that's what, I'm, that's what makes people safe is yeah. how well they understand their environment. Like you or Rafa can look at Niagara and see things that I'm never going to see. We can both paddle off of it, but you guys are going to be have much better odds of coming out the bottom <laughs> successfully than I think. Do, you know, I, I looked at those boils and seams, but you understand those in a way that I just don't. I don't run shit like that. Um, although I sure thought about it when I was there, I'll admit it. <laughs> Anybody who's a kayaker stands on the edge of Niagara, you're thinking about it, aren't you? It's hard but not it, to look at it. <laughs> understanding. Oh yeah, you, I know exactly. I look. I know exactly where I go off that thing. But uh, but your risk understanding is important, and I think what, that was what Rafa did too. He looked at it and he understood the risks well enough, and he understood what was going on well enough to walk away. Yeah. And that is that is I thought that was really really cool. Somebody yeah. who understood that less well, myself for example, I could have just gone, "Eh, I'm going to huck it." Yeah. And maybe it'd work out, maybe it wouldn't, but it wouldn't be an under it wouldn't be done with understanding. It would be done with just the huck it. Yeah. And the huck it works for a bit, but you know, you've been in this game forever too. The huck it doesn't work for all that long. You better yeah base your decisions on understanding and, and understanding when you don't understand the situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing, I mean that like fr- from talking with Rafa and just seeing the film too. And if, if you guys haven't seen it, go check out uh, chasing Niagara, just an amazing film. But, um, but I think Rafa really got the understanding of that. It wasn't that there was so much more in the line with the fact that if things went, you know, downhill, all of these other people were going to be, you know, really negatively yep. affected. And, and I think it takes, you know, knowledge and experience and, and leadership to realize like, okay, I'm not going to put them at risk for something that I just, whether it's, you know, my joy or fame or whatever you're chasing, like it takes someone, you know, to really know like, okay, it's not just about me. It's, it's about the whole group mm-hmm. here. And maybe the best thing for the whole group is for me to walk away from this thing. Yeah. And that's understanding, you know, like that is, that's truly understanding a situation. And that's what I admire most in life is people who have, who understand things well, who yeah. really get it and all of the permutations, you know, I want my, I want my surgeon to really understand my knee. Yeah. <laughs> on the program you know and, and and that's all the permutations in life and that's something we have to think about as outdoor sports athletes you know our our, our actions do have impacts on other people and, um and, you know so i think but for i mean a lot of people have kids so this will be something that's that i use with my kids that you might have fun doing with yours and and um when they were really young like about four is when it started to kick in um there'd be like a log across the creek and my kid would be like okay i want to go across the the log because they're like me you know they're fired up. They're like the log, the dangerous thing. I want to go there and it's going across the Creek. So I, I talk with them. I'd be like, what can go wrong? You know, that hazard recognition portion. And you know, what would happen? She's like, well, if I fell on the upstream side, then I could get stuck against the branches. And okay. Do you think you could get, Oh, I don't know. Water's pretty, you know, and and these like four and five year olds. And then we talked about it. So we came up with a system for analyzing situations and it was very much a collaboration. I can't take credit for it. So that the most basic hazard level, is is bumps and bruises you don't you don't need to do much for mitigation it's like yeah outcomes here are good here you know you're at the playground whatever you fall off the slide you know bumps and bruises generally and then um we'd be out someplace like a hiking along a path where there was a big drop off or whatever and i'd ask them like you know what's where are we at now and they'd be like oh dad we're 
This is getting a little more real. Actually, if you fell off there and landed on your head, that'd be hospital for sure. And be like, okay. And, and, you know, and then they'd be like, we're going to stay a little more toward the, toward the side of the cliff that doesn't have the drop off and, you know, maybe hold the younger one's hand. Okay. And then we'd be in some heinous environment, like, you know, New York city or Toronto or someplace <laughs> that's just epically hazardous, you know, we'll go along the sidewalk and they've got my hands, you know, I'm doing some speaking gig or something. And, and uh, I'd be like, all right, what level are we at now? If you like run out into the street, and you don't look. And they'd be like, death, death, death. And, and okay, what are we going to do about that? Well, we're always going to look before we run out and we're not going to run out and we're going to like, hey, hold on to your hand. And these are all the steps we're going to take to mitigate. And, the other day they were up with a treehouse. I built this stupidly high treehouse in the backyard for them. And they're up there with like a whole group of their little friends. And they're arguing about whether it was going to be hospital or death if they fell out and landed on their heads. And I was like, my job is done here. <laughs> you know? Awesome. So bumps and bruises, hospital death. And, uh, and there's your, there, and then what are we going to do about those things? And it applies across pretty much everything we do, whether it's paddling or whatever you know or, or starting up a new business or investing or whatever so that's super there's, some, cool. there's some ideas <laughs> so that's it for you guys uh just a couple of my favorite moments of the past 100 episodes honestly there are so many more um these are just a couple that i really thought i wanted to pick out and share with you guys again especially if you guys haven't heard all 100 episodes. If so, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you guys haven't listened to all 100, uh, they're obviously all still there. So you guys can go back and listen to anything that you may have missed or the long format interviews with any of these guests. If you really enjoyed these kind of um, tidbits of information that they've shared. And again, yeah, happy 100th episode. Uh, I look forward to uh, for another hundred more. So we'll kind of keep this train rolling. And again, thank you guys for all that you do for sharing this out, building our community, for leaving your ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app, as well as even just sending me the DMs on Instagram and just kind of keeping me motivated to do the hard work that uh, that gets put into to doing these because um, again it's not necessarily for financial gain but just something that I wanted to share and uh, yeah I'm really just trying to do my best to kind of help share knowledge um, with more people as well as just spread positivity uh, amongst as many people as possible so that's kind of my goal from the get-go and going to continue on so thank you guys again all for tuning in and as always I'm Nick Troutman signing off, wishing you all an awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.